Psalm 19 is obviously a well-loved, well-known psalm. Uh, I've heard someone say that uh, Psalm 19 is sort of the shortened, abbreviated version of Psalm 119. Um, Psalm 19, uh, I'm going to kind of give you a, a quick outline. And uh, this outline is sort of adapted from maybe three or four different sources, but I think a lot of people pretty much agree on this outline. So verses one through six of Psalm 19 uh, is about general revelation, God's world. So uh, verses one through six, general revelation, God's world. Verses seven to 11 is special revelation, God's word. So again, verses one through six, general revelation, God's world. Seven to 11 is special revelation, God's word. And then verses 12 to 14 is personal application or just application. So I'm gonna say that one more time because this is a really important, I think, outline to, to grasp the Psalm. Otherwise, it feels like the psalm just jumps around and you're not quite sure why. It's one moment it's talking about the sun and one moment it's talking about the law of God. What's happening? So verses 1 through 6, general revelation, God's world. 7 to 11, special revelation, God's word. And then 12 to 14 is personal application. So I'm just going to begin with that first section. And uh, th this is just wonderful words. So just read with me again here. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, it's hard to read this passage without thinking of the words of Romans 1. And we won't turn there, but they're probably familiar to you if you've been around our church for a while, because they're very significant. Romans 1 also talks about general revelation. So general revelation is that God has made some aspects of himself known through nature. And so there are certain things, pretty basic things, that we can learn about God just by having a mind that works and just by eyes that work and just going outside and observing God's creation. Um, I, I've, uh, I've talked to my students sometimes about this. Uh, when it says, you know, the heavens are declaring God's glory and the sky is talking about God's glory. You know, pe people will say, well, you know, it, a lot of people are atheistic or uh, they don't believe in God at all. You know, it, it doesn't seem so clear that God's glory is just being spoken through nature. Uh, why are there so many atheists? Why, why is atheism rising as a, as a movement today? Um, that wouldn't be the case if it was so obvious. Um, let me just again refresh you on the words of Romans 1. You don't have to turn there, but it, it, Paul says, For what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. It's pretty strong uh, language there from Paul to say it is plain. God's existence is obvious. It is plain. God has made it plain. In fact, God has shown us the invisible. You say, how can you see something that's invisible? Well, 
this is this is this happens all the time. Like just just take with sports. Um, if, if an athlete is incredibly talented, you cannot see that talent. That talent is invisible until it is put on display in a particular moment uh, during a game where you see their skill. It becomes apparent. It becomes obvious. Well, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature, they are invisible, but God has shown them to us through his own creation, what he has made. Um, you know, if, if you go, I know I've mentioned this, I'm sure at some point, but if you go to Mount Rushmore, which I've never been to, and you see that, uh, the, the, you see those four faces up there, and you look at that, it, there is no argument that is needed to conclude that that was intelligently designed through a lot of hard work by people who were really working hard to make it look that way. Uh, th that was not time and matter and chance. That wasn't a thunderstorm and water and uh, you know random elements interacting over a long time that created the faces on Mount Rushmore. Well, it is even more apparent that your brain is not an accidental thing. Uh, the sun and the moon and the stars are not accidental. Th these things are evidently designed. And what we will often see is that cultures will often develop myths in order to not believe uh, in the true God who exists. And um, to, to, to be honest with you, I want to read just a quote from Don Carson. And I, I want to be very clear here. This is not a knock on legitimate science. We have a number of people at our church who are legitimate Christian scientists, who are, I almost said Christian scientists. That would be a very different religion right there, ladies and gentlemen. But who are Christians and scientists who know these things very well. That's absolutely legitimate. But there are ways in which science has been misused in the last century and a half, especially. And Don Carson says this. But just as ancient peoples manufactured complex myths to explain the sun, the moon, the stars, the... Uh, the, the shame of our culture is that we also manufacture complex scientific myths to explain them as well. Of course, our knowledge of how things really are is more advanced and accurate than these ancient societies, but our deep-seated philosophical commitment to the notion of random, purposeless, mindless, accidental organization of everything is horribly perverse. Anything to avoid the far more obvious conclusion of a supremely intelligent God capable of spectacularly wonderful design. The evidence is there. The celestial hosts pour forth speech night after night. They display knowledge. And so, uh, again, not a knock on legitimate science, but there is a way in which science has been sort of hijacked by philosophies that are essentially saying everything could maybe come from what? Nothing. And then organize itself through a, a, enough time into human beings who can interact and speak. And scripture says we really do deep down know better. And Paul says we suppress the truth of general revelation by our own unrighteousness. And instead we make idols out of the creation rather than worshiping and serving the creator himself. So the heavens are telling the glory of God day by day, night by night. Uh, James Boyce says general revelation is three things. Now, it's probably more than three things, but it's three things. Number one, general revelation is continuous. Number two, it is abundant. And number three, it is universal. So it is, it is continuous, abundant, and universal. What does he mean by continuous? Look at verse two. Day after day, it pours forth speech, and night after night, it reveals knowledge. 
general revelation never stops. Every time someone looks through a telescope or just looks at the moon at night or looks at the sun during the day or examines a tree or the ocean or plant life or animal life or the human body and how complex it is, um, every time we see these things, we are having shouted back at us that God is there. And this is happening all the time, day in and day out. I know you guys remember Caitlin Cato's uh, testimony as she was an atheist and then became an agnostic and then a theist and then became a Christian and she was baptized at our church in this last year. But Caitlin said that when she was doing her work on science, working on her PhD at UGA, she said even as an atheist, she was challenged by the complexity of the way the world is. And she said the science was making her actually consider that there must be a creator out there somewhere. Now, it didn't, it didn't bring her straight to the gospel, but it did begin the process where she, told, she, she said s- several times that the thought that this is so complex, it is so astonishing what's going on in, in the world, that there's no way this could have just happened. So general revelation sparked some thoughts in her that began moving her towards believing in God in the first place. And that, that, that's happening day in, day out. General revelation is continuous. Number two, general revelation is abundant. Uh, you can see here in verse two again, day after day, it pours forth speech. That, that phrase pours, for, uh, pours forth, I, I read was, it could be used to describe a fountain that is constantly gushing forth with fresh water. General revelation is constantly pouring forth speech about God. Uh, Just as you look at great artwork, that artwork, even if there are no words written on the actual canvas, the artwork, if it's done by a brilliant artist, it is pouring forth speech about the brilliance of Picasso or all these different artists. It's, it's telling you about their brilliance. You can look at their artwork and you can conclude things about their intelligence and their brilliance and their artistry just by looking at the canvas, never having heard of the artist, never having met the artist. Even if there are no words written about the artist on the canvas, just by seeing brilliant art, you can rightly conclude certain things about the person who did that. Uh, you can look at great architecture. Uh, you, you can look at great skyscrapers. And you, you may have never heard the name of the, of the man or woman who designed it. You just see it and you know instantly this person is brilliant. This person is an amazing architect. This person was, was unbelievable. And uh, you, you don't have to know anything about them, but seeing their artwork tells you about the artist. Well, I mean, I think having young children, you, you awaken again to how amazing everything is. You know, an ant pile is amazing to our almost four-year-old son. Uh, you know, every leaf on every tree is something to kind of call mom and dad over. Look at this leaf. Look at this. And it kind of wakes you up. When you, when you take a, a green leaf off of a tree and you hold it up to sunlight and you look at it and you see the intricacy of all that's going on just in that leaf and what it is capable of doing, we are seeing speech pouring forth about the creator. Uh, day after day, continuously and abundantly, God is communicating basic truths about himself, his eternal power and divine nature. And number three, general revelation is universal. Uh, look at verse three and four. Now, I, I will tell you that verse three is a little confusing. Uh, 
in the original language, it just says, no speech, no words, voice is not heard. And I looked at a bunch of English translations, and, and it seems like right now most English translations, almost all of them, agree on this. I think the, the 1984 NIV might be different, but almost every translation today says, essentially, that when the creation is speaking, it's not using literal speech. In other words, they, they don't use real words. There is no speech. They, they're not using literal human words. Uh, th their voice is not literally heard. So uh, verse three is saying, don't think of this as literal messages in the clouds written in English, like God is up there, God is here. No, it's not using literal language, but it is speaking deeply into our heart truths that we can know with genuine certainty. So verse four, it's universal how their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So it doesn't matter how uh, educated someone is. It doesn't matter where they grew up. It doesn't matter someone's ethnicity or cultural background. Everyone on earth, wherever they have lived or will live, has abundant access to general revelation that God is real, that God is creator, that God is powerful, that God is eternal. These things, and even our conscience tells us something about God's morality. That, that, that we, even unbelievers have a conscience that tells us right and wrong. So these are all things that general revelation presents to us. And then David just points to one specific uh, thing in general revelation, which is the sun. So look at the end of verse 4. Talking about the heavens, he says, In them he, God, has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, let's just go back to the time of David. You guys remember that year? Around the year 1000 BC, so 3000 years ago. David had not looked at the Hubble telescope images that you and I have seen. Okay, D David is thinking 1000 BC, when he looks at general revelation, he's not mainly thinking about these galaxies far, far out there that he did not see like we've seen. His primary object of just astonishment, yes, the moon was astonishing. Yes, at night, the stars were astonishing. He talks about that. But the sun was number one. And I think even for us today, the sun is still the, the most obvious and dramatic uh, object of God's creation that just swirls over us during the day. And so he zeroes in on the sun. And I love the description. The sun is like the bridegroom on the day of his wedding, coming out of his chamber, heading to go marry his fiance. Okay. So, I mean, you just, I mean, I, I can still remember, uh, this is a dumb, dumb story to tell you right now, but I, I remember getting like the tuxedo, you know, the really nice suit on, uh, it wasn't a tuxedo, I guess. It was just like a really fancy suit. But if I got my really nice suit on and uh, I was at this kind of, you know, this not super nice apartment and I came out of my apartment and I'm, you know, you're all jittery and nervous on the day of your wedding and you're super excited and you're just kind of like all these thoughts swirling through your head. So I walk out of the door of my apartment and uh, there's this little kid, I don't know, probably like a nine-year-old, eight-year-old boy from another apartment and he looks at me and I'm wearing like, I look like, I don't look like most people in our apartment complex normally look, okay, on that morning. And he just kind of sort of stares at me like, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. We said something, I think, to each other. And then I, I got in my car and we left. But like just as, as you're leaving your home, heading to go get married, 
you just you're just radiant. You're you're a it's a different kind of thing. And he says every morning when the sun comes out of his tent, obviously this is poetic language. At the sunset is the sun going into his tent for the night, and then in the morning the sun emerges from his tent at sunrise, and the sun is rejoicing. The sun is radiating light. He's like a groom heading to go meet his bride on the day of his wedding every single day. It's just this powerful force radiating this energy and life and vitality as he soars overhead uh, on earth. He's like a strong man running his course with joy. Now, many people have worshipped the sun. And in David's day, people worshipped the sun. David is not leaving any room for that, obviously. David is saying the sun has a course set by God for him to run. God made this incredible thing that gives life and light and heat to our world and keeps our world going. God made that. Uh, that, that was something he could make with the tip of his finger. And it runs a course set by God every day. God gave it its tent. God controls that. And nothing is hidden from his heat. So just seeing the sun should tell us something about the power and the awesomeness of God, our creator. Let me just recommend something. Whenever you, you see a news story about the sun, you know, sometimes they talk about solar flares and things. I don't understand this stuff. But you should Google, uh, like, astonishing facts about the sun and just read an article uh, or, or watch a video on YouTube uh, where they just describe the power and the intensity of the sun and just, just watch it and just let that remind you that that was made by God with infinite ease, effortless by God. And the, just, just let science, let the truth of creation not become an end in itself, but let it become a pathway to worship the one who made it. I mean, just like with great art, we, we typically don't just praise the artwork, we praise the artist. And we should do that with, with God's creation as well. Okay, now general revelation, we're going to move on. Uh, David says God's world is a form of revelation telling us about God's glory. but it doesn't communicate all that we need to hear. We need special revelation, which is God's word in scripture. We need that for the gospel, for salvation, for reviving of our soul, to really transform us into God's image and to save us and to, to, to transform us. We must have not just general revelation. You, know, you, you can't look at a tree and infer that God sent his son to die on a tree. The gospel cannot be inferred from general revelation. We need special revelation for God's saving work in our life. So part two, special revelation, God's word, verses seven through 11. And honestly, this we could spend a long time on this. I understand what it is like when you're listening to someone on Zoom. It, I, I've, just, I've talked to a lot of y'all. I don't want to go on for another hour and a half, okay? So, so next, next week, we'll go an hour and a half, right, when we're back in person. I'm just kidding. But for right now, I don't want to go through this in every word, but you can pick up a good commentary or study Bible and look through because verses seven through nine are worthy of days of study because each phrase is packed and I won't have time to unpack all of it, unfortunately. Verses seven to nine. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true 
and righteous altogether. I really am going to do this in injustice right now, but just quickly, God's word is referred to as his law, his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, his fear, fear of the Lord, and his rules or his judgments. God's word is perfect. It is sure, reliable. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. It is true. And what God's word does to us, it revives the soul. Now, just stop for a second here. It revives the soul. I think this, this very likely includes both regeneration and our growth as Christians. When we're unbelievers, we need to be revived. We, we need life the first time. But as Christians, we need to be renewed day by day. And um, wow, the, the word of the Lord can revive our soul. Listen, th there is nothing else in the world that can revive our soul. I understand there's, there's a place for things like uh, physical exercise. Paul says bodily training is of some value, but nothing compares to God's word. To revive the soul, only God's word is able to do that. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. Uh, th there is no other source of that whole true joy than coming from God and ultimately from his word. It enlightens the eyes so we can see clearly what's in front of us. Like, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It, it gives us light and opens our eyes so we can see reality. And God's word is righteous altogether. Um, God's word is right in all that it affirms. It is transformative. It is life-giving. And this, because of these truths, David comes to this amazing conclusion. Verse 10 is awesome. Look, look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. I think Spurgeon said, in youth, we are tempted especially towards pleasure, and in adulthood, we are, we are tempted especially towards financial gain and gold. And he says both of those are covered here, whether it's gold that you are after, which could be 10,000 ways that that'll hit us, where we become obsessed with money and, and, the, and the increase of riches, or physical pleasure. Here he, can, he thinks about the sweetness of honey. Whichever it is, God's word is better. Now, just think for a second. If someone offered you unimaginable amounts of money, like, like you could become a billionaire. You, you could become a billionaire, and all you have to do is you agree that you will not read Scripture anymore for the rest of your life. So we will give you a billion dollars, but you just can no longer read the Bible. Now, obviously, we, we know better than to answer that, uh, right? We're, we're going to give the right answer. But think honestly, the, the temptation that that would be to so many. To say, we will give you unlimited power and resources financially, but you just have to neglect God's word. Which is more valuable? And David says, this is not a question. I will give up all the gold. I will give up all financial security if I had to in order to have scripture. I mean, do we desire scripture more than we desire money? I just think about that. I mean, I know the easy answer is, well, yes, of course, I, I love the Bible. Do we really, on a day-to-day -day basis, 
actually desire, long for time in God's word more than we desire more money. That is challenging. And David says it is more desirable than unlimited money. How about honey? Now listen, we, we may not use honey a lot these days. You know, you might use it here and there. My guess is somebody has one of those really nasty teddy bears right now with the honey in it somewhere in your closet and it, you haven't used it in three years and it's just like it's turned solid inside. Uh, so we don't use honey maybe that much. But think about David, 1000 BC. I mean, they, they did not have the, uh, you couldn't go to Dairy Queen and get the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup Blizzard, okay, when, when David was around. Uh, when David is thinking, David did not have the kind of the ice cream and cakes and all this stuff that we are just take for granted. When it came to sweets, honey was pretty much your option. I mean, there wasn't a lot other than that. And, and imagine you're, you're walking around and you, you see this honeycomb and you, you get some of it and you taste it. I mean, that is just like the sweetest, most incredible kind of dessert you could have imagined when David was alive. So just take whatever your favorite dessert is. We probably shouldn't think about our favorite dessert for long periods of time. But think right now. I mean, I do. I, I have a, a weakness for Dairy Queen blizzards, ladies and gentlemen. If you ever see me in the Dairy Queen drive-thru, it's not me. It's someone else, okay? There might be a North Avenue sticker on the back, but I'm not going to talk about who that was. But no, th- we, we, we love our desserts. David, just pick whatever your favorite dessert is, whatever that is. And David says, Scripture is sweeter and more delightful and more enjoyable than that dessert. And it just, I mean, we, do we use that kind of language about Scripture? It's not just right and true. It's enjoyable. It's desirable. Uh, it is sweeter than the sweetest dessert. It is more enjoyable than our favorite ice cream or cake. That is the kind of language that David uses here. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. God's word is a double-edged sword. On one side, it gives you warnings about violating those rules. And yet, at the same time, there is the promise of tremendous reward for keeping them. And now David breaks this down. We're going to get into application now, verses 12 to 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now, for the sake of time, let me just give you a resource. If you Google, do you guys know the John Piper look at the book? Uh, have y'all seen those look at the book things where he, he has the verses on, printed on the screen and he sort of writes on them with an iPad? He has a really good look at the book on Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. And he takes about 10 minutes and he does a much better job than I'm about to do to try to explain this. So I recommend look at the book, John Piper, Psalm 19. Uh, it is really worth watching. So here's my bad version of that. Here, here we go. So David distinguishes two kinds of sin here. And I really would, maybe in the future, we'll, we'll do more of a full sermon on this concept, because I think this is not often understood well by Christians. I cannot tell you, and I, I'm not beating up on anybody, but I cannot tell you how many times as a high school Bible teacher I have heard students say, all sin is the same in God's eyes. All sin is the exact same in God's eyes. Now, 
there is a certain element of truth here in the, in the fact that all sin is worthy of God's eternal judgment, and all sin is extraordinarily serious. And, and, and as Spurgeon said, all sin is great. Uh, all sin is, is a great sin. But, but let me read you a quote from Spurgeon here about this passage. Spurgeon says this, All sins are great sins, but yet some sins are greater than others. Every sin has in it the very venom of rebellion. It is, the full, it is full of the essential marrow of traitorous rejection of God. But there are some sins which have in them a greater development of the essential mischief of rebellion and which wear upon their faces more of the brazen pride which defies the Most High. It is wrong to suppose that because all sins will condemn us, that therefore one sin is not greater than another. The fact is that while all transgression is greatly grievous and sinful, yet there are some transgressions which have a greater shade of blackness and a more double scarlet dyed hue of criminality than others. Now, if you're wondering, is that biblical? Look with me one more time at verses 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now, pause. Do you see Paul, uh, excuse me, David is talking about real sin in verse 12? Do you see that? He has two names for it. Number one, errors. And number two, he calls them what? Hidden faults. You, you, David is saying that there are real faults, real sins in his life that he does not yet see with clarity. Now, let's just stop here. Every one of us commits sins like this on a daily basis, and we don't even necessarily fully realize it. So there could be habits of the way that we act and talk and think that are actually sinful, but we don't yet see them with great clarity. And so David prays, you'll see in a minute, essentially he wants God to help him grasp this. Who can discern his errors? There are, there are, there are these hidden sins that are present in our life that we can't see clearly. Now listen, this is why, number one, we need to pray that God reveal them to us. Number two, this is why we need people we can trust who can help shed light on sins that we don't see in our own life. I mean, this is painful, but people that we love can help us see our hidden sins because they can see them oftentimes more clearly than we can. And so David says, Lord, help me with this. I cannot see them all, but help reveal them. So God's word helps reveal hidden faults, and we need help to see that. But then David talks about a more serious kind of sin. Those are all serious, but then there's a greater, a more intense sin. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, what the Old Testament calls high-handed sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So David has two kinds of sin. He has hidden faults and great transgressions. He calls them errors and presumptuous sins. They're all serious, but a presumptuous sin is when you know something is wrong and you deliberately choose to do it anyway. A hidden sin is when you don't have full clarity, but it's still wrong and you're still doing it, but it needs to stop. But presumptuous sins are direct and flagrant sins. Uh, David's adultery with Bathsheba, and his murder of Uriah, is that a hidden fault? 
Is that an error? No, that is a presumptuous and great transgression. Moses killing the Egyptian very likely would categorize here as a presumptuous sin as well. Um, those are the ones that we, we, that David says, keep me back from them. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Again, you can listen to Piper's explanation. He has more detail on that, but I'm going to move to the last verse. Verse 14. Here's the final conclusion. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David's, this kind of reminds you of Psalms where David says, search me and know me. See if there is any sinful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, help the words of my mouth, that is my actions, my words, in the meditation of my heart, my inward thoughts, Lord, help them all to obey your word. Help them all to become blameless and holy. The hidden faults and the presumptuous sins help me to fight against all of them and ultimately put me on the path of, of, of obeying you um, in, in all that you've done. And turn with me here to Psalm, uh, we're going to leave this Psalm. Turn with me to Psalm 32 to the right. Psalm 32. And I want to close with this sort of gospel thought. Psalm 32, the first verses are quoted by Paul in Romans 4, as Paul is describing the gospel using the Old Testament. So listen to this. I hope this is encouraging. Uh, when we have sinned, when we, whether we've committed the, the uh, hidden sins or the presumptuous sins, David has a word of gospel hope for us if we will repent and turn to Christ. So listen to Psalm 32.1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Pause there. You see, David is saying when he held on to his sin and he did not confess it, his spiritual life was zapped. It just it taken away. All vitality was gone. And he was left miserable. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So obviously, because Christ took our sin on the cross, if we turn and trust in Christ, our spiritual lifelessness can be turned into spiritual joy. And, and our, our lack of peace can be restored to peace uh, because of what Christ has done. So before we sing, let me just give us a moment of silence to confess sin. Maybe there is either hidden sin or more direct sin in your heart that is maybe come to mind as we've been talking. Confess right now sin to the Lord and ask the Lord for restoration forgiveness. And then uh, we will sing together. So let's take a moment to pray silently.
Father, we thank you that you do hear us when we call for help. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us with our hidden sins, things that we're not even fully aware of, maybe patterns in our behavior that we don't even quite see as being wrong. Lord, I pray that you would bring those to light over time and that you would help us to repent of them. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that we can have our sins not counted against us because they were counted against Jesus on the cross. We thank you that his righteousness can be counted as ours, just as our sin was counted as his. And Lord, we thank you for this good news. I pray now you would help us as we sing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.